Good morning, Christ Prez. Last week, we began a new series in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and we looked at the story of Hannah. Today, our scripture reading is 1st Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. And if you'd like, you can pause this and go ahead and read that passage if you haven't read it yet. Today, we're getting into the main theme of our series, which is kingship and our longing for a true king. And again, what we'll see this morning is that these stories are never only about God's people way back then. They're also about us. This is our story. It begins with God's people longing for a king. Remember in the Hebrew scriptures, Samuel, the book, comes right after Judges. And at the end of that book, we read that in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his eyes, in his own eyes. The people of God are in a precarious position. They're facing threats that are both external and internal. From without, they had continuing opposition from their adversaries, the Philistines. These are Israel's enemies throughout the time of the judges. And in that book, we see a repeating pattern in God's relationship with his people. The Lord would raise up a leader to deliver Israel from their enemies. But as soon as they had been rescued, the people would turn away from the Lord and they would start worshiping other gods. And this would lead them again to be overtaken by their enemies, at which point again they cry out to God for deliverance, and then God raises up another judge to deliver them. And we see this cycle just repeat over and over and over again through the book of Judges. Well, when we get to Samuel, the Philistines are still around. In fact, in the chapter right before our passage, chapter 7, you can read about Samuel uh, being called to serve as a judge to deliver Israel from the Philistines. But here in our chapter, God's people are not content with a mere judge. They want a king who, as verse 20 says, will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. See, they want a king who will guard them against external threats. That seems reasonable. They also want a king who will protect them from internal threats. Listen again to the beginning of our passage. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So what's happening there? Samuel took it upon himself to appoint his two sons as judges over the people, and this didn't go well. Uh, They started taking bribes. The very leaders of God's people um, start perverting justice. So we see that another factor now motivating God's people to desire a king is injustice within their community. You know, for God's people back then, the world was a scary and unstable place. They were threatened from without and from within. And facing these threats, their instinct was to look for a king who would save them. Now, uh, what's wrong with that? I mean, isn't it fine and normal to want protection from enemies? And isn't it good and right to want justice in the community? See, yes, it is. Of course it is. Protection from enemies is a good thing, and justice within the community is a very good thing. Israel's whole existence was meant to model justice for the watching world. So what's the problem? Listen again to verse 5. The people say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. 
See, there it is. The problem isn't wanting a king. In fact, when we carefully read through the Old Testament, we see that God promises a king in Genesis. And as recently as Judges, Scripture highlights the need for a king. A king to be, a king seems to be part of God's good plan for his people. The problem isn't with Israel wanting a king. The problem is that they desire a king like the other nations. Think about it. This desire strikes at the very foundation of their identity as God's people. They want a king like all the other nations because they want to be a nation like all the other nations. One of the commentaries I'm reading puts it like this. In essence, they no longer want to be Israel. It's like they've forgotten who they are and why they exist as the people of God. Uh, Their whole life as a people, remember, was to be ordered around like the inexplicable love of God, relying on God's promises, trusting in God's care and provision. And in this way, they were called precisely to be not like the other nations, but to be distinct, to be set apart. Only in this way would the nations ever be able to get a glimpse and a sense of God's gracious rule. In order to be a blessing to the nations, remember that's, that's what God says they will be way back in Genesis chapter 12. In order to bless the other nations, God's people had to be different. But here they are wanting to be just like everybody else, ready to give up their identity as God's people. And if we probe below that, beneath that, and we ask why, why are they so ready to do this? The answer, I think, is that they don't really trust God. I mean, in a a way, this is Genesis chapter 3 all over again. They don't trust that God is really for them, that his plans for them are really good. You see, their life isn't going the way they want it to go. And instead of that being the occasion for turning to God in faith and engaging with God in prayer like Hannah did, they turn away from God. They think that what they really need is to be more like everybody else. They think that the one to save them will be a human king. The great Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it like this. The whole history of Israel is one of forsaking and going after other gods. This request for a king is one more step in that continuing performance of mistrust. Close quote. You see, the desire for a king isn't a wrong desire in and of itself, but it's clear that what Israel wants is a king other than the one they already have in God. They want a king like all the other nations. In verse 7, the Lord says, they have rejected me from being king over them. Now remember, family, this is Israel's story, but it's also our story. How do we respond when we feel afraid, when we feel insecure, when we feel unprotected? How do we respond when we're confronted by the realities of injustice in our leaders and in our community? See, we're not so unlike the ancient people of God, are we? Like so often our instinct is to take our lives into our own hands and to look for a king who will save us. We look to someone or something other than God to rescue us. We've certainly seen this trend in our politics. I mean, think about how often political rhetoric employs the emotive language of fear. 
promising that if, if that person is elected, whoever it is that your own political group opposes, then they will destroy all that we hold dear. The answer we are promised is to elect this other person, the one whose policies we happen to prefer, who will save us from disaster and bring the way of life we long for. Now, let's be clear, family. I mean, this is not just political rhetoric. It's spiritual. The language of damnation and salvation, of destruction and redemption, all promised to be given to us through a human leader, a little K king. You know, the language scripture uses for this dynamic is idolatry. Like sometimes we load our hopes onto a political candidate or a political party. I mean, we've seen this play out in some really sad and troubling ways over the past years. Sometimes our kings are in the religious vein. We chase after the ideal church or the ideal pastor. Sometimes we make prosperity our king and we organize our lives in whatever ways we think will help us to obtain it. Often our kings are more mundane, more subtle. We look to our money or our relationships, our careers, our possessions. I mean, anything that will give us a sense of power and control and security. God says this is a rejection of him. It's a rejection of our identity as God's beloved people. And our passage shows us the result. I mean, what is the result of putting ourselves into the service of other kings? This does not go well for the people of God. God tells Samuel to show the people the ways of the king who shall reign over them. There's a, there's, um, there's a little play on words here in the Hebrew. God is saying, show them what kind of justice they'll get with these kings. And it's not good. <laughs> Two things stand out. First, these kings take This is the way they rule over us. They take. Listen again. Verse 11. He will take your sons. Verse 13. He will take your daughters. Verse 14. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards. Verse 15. He will take a tenth of your grain. Verse 16. He will take your male and female servants. Verse 17. He will take the tenth of your flocks. See, this is the kind of justice we get from these kings. This is their way with us. It's entirely one-sided. It's all take with no give. And don't you know this from your experience? When you bring another king into the center of your life, your life becomes less and less yours. More and more, it belongs to the one you're giving yourself over to. One of the best modern commentaries on this pattern in the human heart comes from an unlikely source, um, an agnostic novelist named David Foster Wallace. And in this famous commencement speech he gave at Kenyon College years ago, um, he begins to speak on the subject of worship. And and here's what he said. Um, I've shared this before, but listen again. He writes this. Quote, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will never, you will um, 
need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Close quote. See, <laughs> while it says we all worship something, I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're religious or not, every human being looks to someone or something to save them in this sense. We, we're all looking to some little king to deliver us or to save us, to protect us, to make us whole, to bring us the kind of life we really want. But what's the result? Our lives are taken from us. I mean, did you hear him? He says, look to beauty and fitness and sexual allure. What's the result? You will end up feeling insecure and vain and self-absorbed and trapped in addictions and disorders. Look to money and wealth and you'll never have enough. You'll always need more. You'll be racked with anxiety and worry about provision. Look to a political or religious leader. You'll find yourself excusing and justifying all kinds of deception and manipulation and destructive behaviors, even as they are causing harm to you and to your community. See, Wallace says, anything you put your trust in will eat you alive. And God says, that's right. That's what kings do. See, this is the way of our kings. They promise to give us what we really need, but all they do is take. They promise life, but they deliver death. They promise freedom, but they deliver slavery. And that's the second thing we see about the ways of these kings in our passage. They don't just take, they enslave. Verse 17, you shall be his slaves. Think about how those words would have sounded to God's ancient people. I mean, they know about slavery. They had heard the stories of oppression under Pharaoh in Egypt. God's deliverance from that tyranny was the defining act of salvation for Israel in the Old Testament. And now the warning is, if you choose a different king now, it will be a return to Egypt. Family, this is Israel's story and it's our story. We think our kings will give us the liberation we need, but it's always a return to Egypt. I wonder, what are the little kings you've been turning to? And I wonder, (laughs) how is that going? Are they bringing you to a place of freedom and flourishing and um, liberation and justice? Or are they slowly eating you alive, enslaving you? Well, what hope is there? What hope is there? You know, one of the most remarkable things about this passage is that even though God basically says, this is the worst idea ever, he concedes. I mean, he goes along with it. He allows his people to reject him. He allows his beloved people to choose a different king. Why? I imagine there are lots of reasons, and I, and I don't know. I don't know why God does what God does, but... But what we do see is that God can take even the most rebellious human actions and he can work them into his plan for good. And so he takes his people's wrongly motivated desire for a king and he makes it part of his plan to provide for them a true king, a good king, 
who turns the whole concept of kingship on its head. And so about a thousand years later, Jesus shows up. And what does he do? Uh, He starts preaching about the kingdom of God. He says, it's here. He says, it's breaking in. It's at hand. He says that you can begin to live in it now by embracing his way and following him. And he describes this as good news. You know, the way out of the mess we create with our kings isn't to reject kingship. I mean, that, that's a tempting option. We say, well, um, all of our kings have been horrible, and so we must just reject the notion of kingship altogether. But no, what scripture says is, no, look, embrace this king. Jesus is a different kind of king, bringing a different kind of kingdom. The people say, no, there shall be a king over us that we, that we may also be like all the other nations. And Jesus says this, you know that the kings of the nations lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus takes the way of kingship and he turns it upside down. And so as the true king, as the good king, instead of taking, he gives. Instead of enslaving, he serves. Instead of ignoring the weak and the poor and the vulnerable, he becomes weak and poor and vulnerable to make others rich. Instead of demanding you die for him, the true king gives up his life for you. This is his justice. This is his way. This is how he brings true freedom and true life to his people. So family, will you trust him? Will you turn to him again? Will you you reject all the other kings competing for your loyalty and devotion? And will you trust Jesus? This is the king we really need. A king who loves us king who gives his life for us. Put your faith in him again. In Jesus' name, amen.